The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray. Father, great are you, God. Lord, we come to you this morning with thankfulness, Lord, for that reality that you are God, but Lord, also with the reality that you have created a way back to have relationship with you. For Lord, we were once a people lost in darkness, and Lord, your light has come, and it has shone, and Lord, it is building and gathering and bringing a people to yourself, Lord, for your glory, but also for your people's great joy. So, Lord, we come to you this morning asking that you would open up your word um, as we consider a text that is challenging on one front, confronting, Lord, but, Lord, is also good and exposing of us in a way that we can experience you in a new and greater way, Lord. So, Lord, would you be with us? Would you use, Lord, just my small, fragile, scattered words and thoughts? Would you put them together, Lord, uh, in a way that can honor you and in a way that can bring an encouragement, Lord, to each one of us here this morning? So, Lord, be with us and um, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we pick up this morning, uh, taking a break. We've been in the, the book of Matthew, and uh, Pastor Steve has been leading us through that. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be picking up in a sermon series in Ephesians, and I've uh, been looking at Ephesians 4 and 5 and a number of passages of what it, looks to, what it looks like to walk as a Christian, what it looks like to walk, um, in, uh, walk real ultimately in Christ. So we've looked at our walking in the calling that God has given us in the past. We've looked at uh, what it means to walk in the new self. We looked at what it means to walk in love. And this morning, we're going to look at what it means to walk in light. And so, uh, darkness and light are two opposing realities that are certainly captured in the Bible. Um, but one doesn't need to look very far to see how the themes of darkness and light are everywhere, especially when it comes to the different stories that we tell and we can see that in, through stories in movies and books um, and musical lyrics. And I'm sure if we pulled the room right now, we could come up with some different stories about significant experiences that we've had with darkness and light ourselves. And so the question, though, is what is it about darkness and light that makes it such a compelling metaphor for the human experience? What is it about it? So on one hand, the reality of darkness and light is... I think very relatable to our human experience in the day-to-day level. We have the sun that rises, and then it sets. We have day and we have night. <laughs> There's a, con- a, de- a great contrast between light during the day and-, and darkness during night. As humans, we can't properly function without light. There's a reason that we sleep at night and are awake during the day. On another level... It's in darkness that things can be hidden. 
and can be concealed from what they really are. And often with darkness, there's a frequent association with fear. What is it about the dark that strikes fear in many human hearts? And having just passed through October and Halloween, what is it with the fascination around horror films and darkness that draws people and intrigues them? What, what is it about that? It's, it's something that I kind of get, but I don't at the same time. There's something about darkness that fear is something we, we hate and we stand off, but we also kind of step into in some way. Are light and dark, are they two equal cosmic forces that are just duking it out, the yin and the yang of the universe? Or is one greater than the other? Is one going to win at the end? And I think it is not insignificant that God reveals himself in the form of light. And the Bible takes up this theme. So the passage we're going to look at this morning draws significantly from this theme of uh, darkness and light. And to highlight that there is one, that one is greater than the other. And that one's relationship to light or to darkness is of uttermost importance. So let's look at our text this morning. Um, it's going to be Ephesians 5, 13, or excuse me, Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. Um, so we'll look at that, what it means to walk in light. But first, let me read the text here. It says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. So we're going to consider two primary points this morning. And the first point is this. Darkness is incompatible with the Christian way of life. So darkness is incompatible with the Christian way of life. We'll focus primarily here on verses 3 through 6. So as we look at the context, we're picking up in verse 3, and there's two verses right before that and 1 and 2. And the point of the verses before that is that we walk in love because Christ is love. So Paul is drawing... It, uh, the example of Christ, that we are to be imitators of God and to walk in sacrificial love as Christ has walked in sacrificial love. 
That is the nature of God. So for us to be restored as an image bearer in Christ, we are to walk in a similar way. That's how he's created us as humans to operate. And so as he goes on, and we acknowledge that the Christian walking sacrificially in love does not, the, the Christian who walks sacrificially in love is not to associate or participate in the following activities or ways of life. And so he gives two different lists here. He gives one list of sexual immorality, all impurity and covetousness. And then down below, he gives another list of filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. So the Christian who's walking sacrificially in love is those things are not to be named among them. It's not proper and fitting of a Christian. These things are incompatible with the Christian life. And so in, in some ways, this command and this prohibition to not be associated with these things, it's a continuation of, of the commands and prohibitions that we observed earlier in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, right? So he gives, you know, a, a negative command and a positive command and, and helps, helps us figure out what it means to walk in love. Well, Paul is illustrating what it means to walk in love as an imitator of God by providing, again, another example and what it looks like to not walk in love. So as we look at these different descriptions that Christians to, are to avoid, we can make a, a couple observations here. Uh, the words provided here have a strong connotation or connection to sexuality. And the ways in which one can either act or pervert or foolishly make light of sexuality in a way that runs contrary to God's design, God's intended purposes for sexuality. So we see there, there's, in this, there's a strong sexual connotation and theme that's being brought up here. Whereas the Christian is to walk in sacrificial love towards others as Christ has modeled for us, this list is actually meant to highlight the antithesis of sacrificial love. And here, the antithesis of sacrificial love is actually self-love. That is, selfish love, right? So we're to follow in Christ in selfless love, but instead, here, we see something of, of a self-love, a selfish love that, that comes out. And so Paul, uh, he lists a number of ways in which one may attempt to seek satisfaction through their sexuality. So we're going to take a minute just to define some of the terms. What, what are the terms that are listed here, and what, what does that include? So he gives the word sexual immorality, which comes from um, the Greek word porneia, which you can see pornography and other things that come along those lines. But sexual immorality would in include fornication, fornication, adultery, sex outside marriage, uh, sex contrary to one's nature or biology. All of this would be included in a broad category of sexual immorality. could be included there. The second term he gives is impurity. And so this impurity is unclean in a moral sense. So one who lives in an unchecked pattern of lust. So this could be impure thoughts, behaviors, in a way that are constantly under the surface. And in the modern age, we can think about sexual harassment in the workplace where maybe there's not an actual physical act that's taking place, but there's something constantly degrading under the surface. That would be kind of this idea of impurity here. The third term he puts here is covetousness. And we see this one directly brought about in the 10th commandment. 
And specifically, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, right? And so there's unchecked lustful intent or desire for someone that belongs to another. So he gives these different terms that all kind of have different nuance, but there's kind of one, one idea here. So that's, that's the first triad. But then we go down and, and see in, in, the, uh, in verse 4, he gives three more words. And Paul, he's not content to draw the line at the action in and of itself. But he instead goes on to how one speaks about sexuality. So he, he talks about a filthiness here, right? And filthiness is an obscene talk or obscene behavior. He talks about foolish talk, which would be silly talk, or one, one uh, translation of the word said buffoonery, which I think we should bring back into the English vocabulary. Um, so there, there, but there's, there's foolish, foolish talk or talk that's just nonsensical, that's ridiculous. And the third, there's crude joking. And this, this is kind of like wittiness in the bad sense, a coarse, dry humor, a jesting. It's something that is borders and is on the line of inappropriate, but, but subtle. So much like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that anyone who has lust in his heart has committed adultery, Paul seems to be doing a similar thing where he's expanding the definition of sexual sin and, how, and to include how one speaks about sexuality. And here, there's a natural chain that we can see, that what the heart desires, one begins to think about. And what one begins to think about, one begins to speak about. And what one speaks about, one begins to act on. In our current cultural moment, we're in a time that some are calling the sexual revolution. And in one sense, historically, this is nothing new. All of history has ebbed and flowed out of, you know, uh, relating, I guess, as it comes to sex, has, has, I guess, navigated in and out of that in in healthy ways and unhealthy ways. So, in that sense, the sexual revolution is nothing new or unique to our day. But it is also kind of unique because we're we're in a specific moment here. And, And so, in that, Paul is trying to get in front of something of how we speak about it. And how might unchecked, uh, an unchecked sexuality foster a culture of darkness? And how, how could it play, this self, play itself out in our current cultural context? So one, one thing to maybe give an example of this is, you know, you could take the stereotypical picture of a fraternity or frat life, so to say. Now, I'm going to give some examples here, and this is not to say that all fraternities or sororities do this or operate in this way, but I think some of us could, could look in and see how this, this could be possible here. But what happens when you take a bunch of guys and build a cultural, culture around an off-put or a wrong sexuality? A culture in which everyone is relentlessly thinking about it, speaking about it, and then acting upon it. So in that, sinful desires would beget sinful actions, which begets deeper sinful desires and begets more horrendous sinful actions. 
And a perverse culture of sexuality can allow a deep internal darkness to grow in which self-love triumphs and great harm can be done. So as you take a culture that, that maybe puts sexuality right at the center, it can be left to play itself out in an unchecked way, right? And it's out of that that we hear so, so many different stories or documentaries of, of, of rape culture that exists, of, of cheating or adultery or peer pressure or grotesque behaviors and things that are done in secret that are shameful to speak of. So that's one microcosm or one microculture of, of, of how maybe our, our, our culture thinks about that. But it, as a large, our culture is all about unrestrained sexuality. And so it's the speaking that Paul is trying to address. It's the speaking that helps uh, solidify that culture. And so he's trying to address that and, and, and help illuminate. Paul's attempt to expose filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking is an attempt to draw closer to the source of the problem that would help alert and keep the Christian from participating in that which runs contrary to God's, God's design and intention. So as we take a step back from this, some of us might be thinking, why, why does Paul need to focus on sexuality here? Isn't, isn't this something that Christians just do over and over again? What is the Christian's obsession with sexuality? Right? We see it in our culture. There's a culture war. And from the outside, you might look in and think, man, Christians, they're, you know, they're, they're too straight edge. They don't understand what's going on here. And I think the thing that we want to point out is that Paul is focusing on this because Actually, God has spoken about this, and God takes this seriously. You know, couldn't, couldn't, in the sense, couldn't Paul have focused on power or money or other things that we put into idle categories? Of course he could have done that. But my guess is that there's something in the culture surrounding the church of uh, the Ephesian church that needs to be addressed. And that's not much different from our culture today. Also, it's my guess that there's something unique about sexuality that better highlights how one can become darkened in heart and mind as they pursue their own self-pleasure, as they make an idol of sexuality in the pursuit of self-love. So I think in some ways, as we, as we read our, our Bible, sexual, sexual immorality can be seen as the epitome of darkness. And not just sexual immorality in an isolated instance, but sexual immorality when a culture revolves and orients itself around that. As you, as you read the Bible, it can be observed that where there is flagrant or out-of-bound sexuality, there is a very dark society right on the edge of God's judgment and wrath. And we see this, for example, in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Right before judgment comes down on that city. It was their sexuality that was kind of the epitome of that darkness, we can see that at the end of Judges, as Israel and Judah have defected from God, that sexuality becomes perverted with the Levite and his concubine. We can see that, that that shows up. And so we shouldn't attempt to make light of sexual immorality and justify it, because the Bible takes it very seriously. And Paul goes right at it directly here. 
So having said that, we need to take this seriously. But on the contrary, I think we need to be careful that we don't demonize sexuality either. Because great problems and challenges have resulted from generations of doing that as well. So as Christians, we must embrace sexuality as a gift from God rather than a God itself meant to serve ourselves. It's a gift to be enjoyed in the right context that God has established for it, which the Bible has laid out as marriage. So I say that, but it's just a gift among many gifts that the Father bestows upon his children. It is not the gift. And our culture has made it as if it is the gift, it is the pinnacle, that if you haven't experienced this, then you are missing out. You have not experienced life. We think about this, Jesus and Paul didn't receive the gift of marriage. But rather they received the gift, hear this, gift of singleness. And they perhaps are the two most joyous, satisfied men in the Bible. How's that run contrary to our culture today? We are to live in thankfulness and gratitude in what God has provided for us, each in our individual circumstances. No two circumstances are the same. But we're to live in thankfulness and gratitude. And as we read on, I think that's why Paul includes the positive command of thanksgiving. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So if you came here for a Thanksgiving sermon, here it is. God put it right here before us. How is Thanksgiving the antithesis to a self-focused sexuality? Thanksgiving acknowledges that there is a God who has created us to find life and joy in Him. He is a God who has provided good gifts for His children. And to compete against the fleshly temptation of self-focus, we are to focus on the sacrificial, selfless love of God himself and the many gifts he bestows to his people. We are to lift our eyes up to the creator and remember that every good and perfect gift that he has provided, uh, that he has provided with us every good and perfect gift. Namely, the Savior, Jesus himself. We once walked in darkness as Gentiles, as unbelievers walk in darkness. In fact, everyone is born into this world walks in darkness. But as we reminded in, earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what we just sang about starting. There's something powerful and significant about, about the grace of God to save, that he has made us alive together. He's taken us out of darkness. And anyone who has been made alive together with Christ is the most blessed person on the face of the earth. You've been taken from darkness and made into light. And now that you're created as a new self, united to Christ, Darkness is incompatible with who you are as a Christian. So here are some questions that we need to ask of ourselves 
as Paul is implicitly here asking of the Ephesian church. And this is perhaps where this gets a little more challenging. But the question is, are you participating in sexual immorality? Is impurity, lust, perhaps an ongoing struggle with pornography, a defining reality of how you think and act? How are you tempted or prone to covet that which is not yours? Is there filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking that flies freely from your lips, usually at the degrading expense of another? Do you have the eyes to see or even just admit how you've participated in darkness in the past? I ask this because I think there's an, this is an area that many of us would just like to sweep under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. But for some of us, it's still there nagging at you because it hasn't been dealt with. Now, some of us here, we've already dealt with this. <laughs> and so I'm not asking you to go back there if this is something that the, you've worked through with the Lord. But if it's something that's been swept under the rug I think it needs to be drawn out so that we might experience the grace and the forgiveness of our Savior. So because of your new gospel identity, are you freed to admit before God and others your failures? And I say God and others. That doesn't mean everyone, but someone. Are you freed to admit that before God and then as the real test of Am I stepping into forgiveness to admit that before another brother or sister, a close brother or sister who's going to walk with you and care for you? Is there anything in your life right now or at this moment that needs to be brought into the light? Are there unhelpful associations with darkness in any context of your life that are out of place, that are incompatible with the Christian way of life? Now, I'm pushing here a little bit because God takes our sin, and here we're talking about sexual sin, but God takes our sin very seriously. It is incompatible with the Christian life as we continue along the way. So now, I recognize that on one level, in this room, we are all fallen sexual sinners. That's true. And that perfection is not the goal, as if we could attain perfection. But here, for some of us, this might be an opportunity to step into the light. This might be an opportunity for Christ to shine on something that we might actually experience him in a greater way as Savior and Lord. Paul is not satisfied to merely provide the prohibition, right, to provide the command and just move on. But we see he also provides with stark clarity the reality or the consequences of living in darkness. And he does this to provide a helpful motivation for us to not participate or associate with sexual sin. In verse 5 he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. As we hear those things, this is real. This is deep. This is serious. The consequences of living in darkness and unchecked darkness is that those in darkness will not inherit the kingdom of God. The consequence is that those in darkness deserve the wrath of God and that all sin will be dealt with accordingly. Darkness has no place in the life of the Christian. It's antithetical. Those who remain in darkness will not inherit the kingdom of God and due to their acts of darkness they will one day be judged by the coming wrath of God. And this is truly sobering for anyone in this situation. So we want, want to take that and not just skip past that so that we can get to the happy part, right? The good part. We want to sit that and honestly ask and invite God through his spirit to shine a light in our hearts to expose where exposure is needed. And we'll talk about more how exposure leads to transformation here in a minute. But these consequences are not here to imply that someone can lose their salvation. Rather, they're here to help draw a distinguishing line between darkness and light. So for the Christian, the Christian will eventually be so grieved by darkness that they are led to, led to repentance. And I say eventually in that a lot of our lives are messy, right? A lot of us can live in a season of pride and arrogance and, and kind of live, though saved, live on the fringe, on the edge of darkness. But the, for the Christian, they will eventually be so grieved that they are led to repentance. But for the unbeliever, they will continually retreat or sulk back from the darkness or from the light. They'll sulk back to darkness and for the unbeliever, they may actually experience conviction. They may experience the shame and guilt of sin. But conviction and shame and guilt over sin are not enough in and of themselves to save us. Many people in the surrounding context of a Christian culture, say within a church, can blend in as a Christian but they have never experienced the grace of God that leads to a repentance. Light has not shone in their hearts to expose darkness to the point of grief over sin, to the point of grief over sin that leads to the death of self, to the surrender to God. It is only through the death and surrender in which Christ can come into one's life and reign as Savior and King. So this, this is the challenging part of this text. This is the challenging part of this sermon here. And it might have some of us relating to darkness right now in, in different ways, right? So some of us here in the room might be actively a participant in darkness right now in this moment in need of repentance. Some of us in this room might have a passive association with darkness, right? 
We're, we're, we're fringe. We're in the gray area. You know, the language, the talk, the associations, the things we're looking at are having an impact on our life. Some of us here, just by opening up this topic, might be plagued by the darkness of our past. That there's things that are coming up and just like, oh, put that away. Why are you talking about this? Stop. But perhaps there's some of us in here that are operating as children of light. We're thankfulness where God is exposed and convicted, but provided grace and mercy and salvation. So the question is, I, I don't know where you are right now. You do. And here's an opportunity to bring these things before the Lord, to ask him to expose. And whatever the circumstance we find ourselves in, and I understand each one is unique, our need, our help, our path forward is going to look similar. What we need is we need to seek and walk in the exposing, transformative light of Christ. Darkness is incompatible with the Christian way of life. Now, we're going to look at the positive Christian way of life, walking as light, as opposed to the negative way of life of walking in darkness. So here's our second point. And this is where this, this turns. As children of light, Christians are to walk in the exposing, transformative light of Christ. As children of light, Christians are to walk in the exposing, transformative light of Christ. So in verse 7 he says, Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So why are we to have no partnership with darkness? He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So in our past, we were darkness. That's what you were. That was your identity, your character, your ontology. But now you are light. At the core, it's not we are like light. We are light. And we are light in the Lord. And ultimately, Christ is light. As he shines on a person and is there indwelt by the Holy Spirit, a radical exposing transformation takes place in which a person becomes light themselves. And I think this is important. As we think about Paul's conversion, conversion the Apostle Paul, he gives three different testimonies, three different accounts of it. He gives one in Acts 9 where that's kind of where it happens in the history. And then he gives two accounts as he's preaching the gospel, proclaiming to others about what God has done in his life. And in each of these accounts, we see three different elements that is unique there. We see that he recalls in his conversion that as, he, as he's on the road to Damascus, there is a bright light and the voice of Christ come upon him, right? And so the question, who is the light? The light is Christ, the light comes and shines upon Paul. So we see that there's, there's a light in the voice who is Christ there encountering Paul. Secondly, we see an exposure of sin. In all the dialogues, there's a recon recognition that Paul has persecuted Christ and the church, right? Paul interacts with Christ face to face, and right there his sin, 
boom. Why are you persecuting me? Right? Exposure of sin. But then from there, there's a beautiful rebirth. And he goes on and talks about the transformation of himself as a person as he begins to walk in light and obedience. And he goes forever changed in that moment. He goes and he's baptized. He begins to proclaim the gospel. His life is radically altered and changed. And this is because of who Christ is as light shining in on his life. So this, this process is unique to all people. And for myself, I grew up in a Christian home. And I, I, would, I had what I would consider a number of God moments as a kid growing up. Yet, it wasn't until college that my sin was ultimately exposed and I began to experience the grace of God and transformation of my heart and my desires. And in this, it was the light of God that began to shine and continued to shine, further exposing the dark recesses of my own heart. And this was challenging because the darkness, was, uh, the darkness in my heart was worse off than I was ever aware of. It's like, whoa. Like, you keep learning more. It's like, wow, I'm offensive to you, Lord, in how I think, how I live, how I operate. It was challenging, but it was also incredibly beautiful. Because as the light shone and I surrendered myself to its exposing power, I began to witness legitimately for the first time a transformation as I experienced something new of the love and the grace of God. And I refer, there's a year, this is kind of a year process in my life. I refer to this year as a year of tears. I probably cried more in that year than I had in most of my life up until that point, with the exception when, when I was a baby because I was a colicky baby. You know, God bless my parents. Um, but that, that, was, <laughs> that was the most I'd, I'd cried. And they weren't tears of sorrow, but they were tears of brokenness and joy and fullness of God. The light is nothing to be scared of, but I do have to admit that it is initially uncomfortable because it's different from anything that I'd experienced before. But it was beautiful. So the question I want to ask is, have you experienced anything like that? Do you desire to experience something like that? And I ask this not to highlight my experience as the ultimate end, as if I've accomplished something here. No. I share this to illustrate the beauty and joy of the light of Christ that is common to those who have experienced it. Exposure of light is the only way to transformation. So now that we have seen that we are light, we've seen something of the exposing power that begins a radical transformation. Because of what we are, now Paul gives us the following command. And notice, we can't give the command until we are something. But he says, walk as children of light. And if we were to take this verse and just read it more woodenly for how, uh, how it's translated, the translation makes it, smoother, but it'd be more, you'd change the order a little bit. A wooden translation would be, as children of light, walk. And I think that's helpful, because 
as a child of light, that's what you are. That's your identity. That is what Christ has done when he has shown in your heart. Now walk. We can't walk until this has happened. And this is probably the frustrating experience of many people in, in a Christian community is that this hasn't happened and we're trying to walk in it and it's, it's not ever going to change. And so something here needs to happen first. As children of light, walk. So what does it mean to be a child of light? Because of who you are as a child of light, now we are to walk in that already true reality. So it's not, don't walk like a children of light, like a child of light, as if it's something we, we can become and somehow start walking on that way of our own power and initiative. No, Christ has made us a child of light. That's who you are in your character, in your identity as a born-again Christian. That is who you are as a new creation, the new self. And so we must walk by the Spirit, gazing upon Beholding Christ is the greatest innermost reality about who we are. A child of light in the Lord. And in that, as we walk in that identity of who we are, then transformation, our sanctification, our holiness, growth takes place. And he says the fruit of light results in goodness and righteousness and truth. So there's a natural fruit. When you are light, then you walk in a way that is light. You walk in, in what is good and right and true. As opposed to the unfruitful works of darkness, you know, that are sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, the things that we listed above. As light, we are able to discern and act in a pleasing way, in a pleasing manner to the Lord. Suddenly we're freed that we don't have to do anything for God, but we do it in the sense that we are gaining standing for him, but we do it in relational terms because we want to please him. There's a freedom there. And so the recap here. First, we must become a child of light. But in order to become a child of light, we are in need of an exposing, transformative work of God to take place in our hearts. Second, walk as a child of light. And this is not much different than becoming a child of light in that we're in continual need to experience the exposing, transform, transformative work of the Spirit shining in through Jesus. So the Christian life is continual repentance and faith, a continual inviting of the Spirit to come and shine and direct our path, a continual deep dive into the mercy of grace as we see our sin and, and He changes us as we turn and repent. Given that anyone who is in Christ is a child of light, then how are we to walk? And this, this is the last part here. How, how do we walk as a child of light? What does this look like? In verses uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, point to this. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. So how, how do we walk as a child of light? What does this look like? Well, first, don't associate with or participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, right? There needs to be a, a separation, a gap here. Take no part in that. 
That's, that's, that's the simple, easy part here. Two, we work to expose darkness, right? But in, and instead, expose them. Expose the works of darkness. So what does he mean by expose? I think he means that we expose, we, we, we oppose, we rebuke. We recognize what is darkness, and we call it just that. And I, I don't understand this passage to be saying that we are to actively uncover and expose all darkness that is out there in the world. So we're not, you know, the finger-pointing Christian of like, sin, you know, repent, sin, repent. No, but as a Christian community, we are to recognize what it is that that's right, that's wrong, and then we order our lives accordingly in that reality. We don't need to take the role of the Holy Spirit to make sure that another person's experience Another person experiences conviction for their sin or darkness. But we are to clearly delineate, label, or speak against what is sinful or wrong. And I think this starts at a young age. Um, recently in our church, I, I think this was in the past year, we did a, a class, Birds and Bees, how do we talk to our kids about sexuality and um, pornography and things along those lines. But this is the helpful thing as parents as we expose our kids to that there are realities of darkness that exist out there. We don't want to be ignorant of that. We say there are realities of, of, of things. And the world, if we're not communicating to our kids, the world will communicate to them at an earlier and earlier age, unfortunately. But we need to teach our kids about these things. We need to give them vocabulary to label it. That when they see a naked body pop up somewhere, they have the word in their mind, that's pornography. Oh, we're not supposed to look at that. But if we leave it a mystery, if we leave it a gray area, then there's intrigue and interest. And again, that's not a bulletproof that's going to prevent someone from looking at it. But as for ourselves and for our kids as a community, we need to be able to label and give words to what is dark and what is light. And to speak positively about what God's intended purpose is for that, is, is for it as well. So in that sense, we, we want to work to expose darkness. We want to have language that defines it in that way. Third, we are to keep some distance between ourselves and what happens in the dark. He says, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So we know that the heart of man is wicked, capable of great evil. And here, this is more of a statement about the depravity of man than anything else. But it's also a subtle warning for us to be careful in what we expose ourselves to. In one sense, we are to be grieved by everything, yet surprised by nothing, right? We know that the world has great darkness. So when we hear of something, we should not be surprised by that. But when we hear something that's horrendous, we should also be deeply grieved by that. We need to be careful in how we speak about what happens in the dark, we want to avoid any language or concentration on a topic that would approve or celebrate or entertain darkness to give an affirming nod of, oh, yeah, that's fine, that's common. So we're to keep some distance between ourselves and what happens in the dark. And fourth here, how do we walk as a child of light? We're to be prayerful or expectant 
that what is exposed by the light of Christ can be transformed to, to become light itself? Should we be expectant that what is exposed by the light of Christ can be transformed to become light itself? And he says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. There's a transformative power to light. And we highlighted this. When the light of Christ shines upon the Apostle Paul, he is transformed. But then begins a chain reaction. When the Apostle Paul is shined upon, he is made light. And when he is made light, he then becomes part of the process through which God shines upon others to make them light. In the end, it is all the light of Christ, but it is the light of Christ shining in and through his church and through his people. And that God has given the church a role to participate in the exposing, transformative work of light. This passage ends with a beautiful quote that is difficult to place where it's directly pulled from, but the idea is certainly developed and present in the book of Isaiah. Some have thought this last little thing to be a kind of liturgy or song that would be recited at a new believer's baptism, which would be totally fitting. But it says this, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we see that there is a work that that Christ will do to shine, but there's also a a participation in that we are awaking, right? We awaken, that we arise. But how does someone know that they were sleeping unless they are first made awake, right? How does someone know that they were dead unless they are now alive. And here, this, this comes down to the work that Christ must shine. And part of our t- participation is we invite him to shine. And as he shines, we are awoken to see the darkness and to redirect. We are awoken to see the death and to see that we are now alive. And this leads to thanksgiving and gratitude. And this leads to us becoming part of the process to help come alongside other people. As children of light, Christians are to walk in the exposing, transformative light of Christ. Christ is the light anticipated from the days of old, the light to whom we must be awakened, the light that brings about life from death. He is the only hope for life and transformation. It is only by Christ that we can walk as children of light. It is by his light that darkness is exposed and judged for what it is. It is by his light that anyone can be saved. And it is by his light in the church that he will glorify his name. So in a moment, we are going to sing here, Great is our God, recognizing the salvation that he has brought to us. And here, there's a reminder that we will seek him. And so that, that's the invitation. I'm going to pray, but that, that's the invitation that we would seek the Lord and invite this and believe that this is for our very good. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, 
Lord, recognize that this is a very challenging and perhaps convicting passage. Lord, I pray um, where any of us is confronted by something here, Lord, would you help us to see the grace and kindness and goodness in your face, Lord, that you receive all who come to you with a humble and contrite heart. Lord, that you have set a better way of life. Lord, that you have, it is your intention to deliver from darkness to bring into light. And Lord, even if we're confused and don't know exactly what that might look like, Lord, would you help us, give us faith to trust you that you will be with us every step of the process. Lord, would you shine in our hearts to expose, but Lord, not to just expose and leave us there exposed, but to transform and to clothe us with your righteousness, with your glory through your spirit, Lord. So Lord, we are needful, dependent on you to do this. And Lord, I pray that you would have an experience of grace and joy and life for us, Lord, that is new and fresh and keeps us coming to you living in the light. So Lord, help us as we seek you, Lord, and give us grateful and thankful hearts for who you are and how you're at work. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.